Greetings from uh, fellow elders and the congregation at Clear Creek Chapel, and they are praying for us uh, this afternoon. Um, it's an honor and a privilege to be here and to be speaking to you this afternoon. I've known Pastor John since about 1978, and I was just a kid, and uh, I've been a thorn in his side ever since, I think. <laughs> Um, but I do appreciate uh, I appreciate being here. I got reacquainted with John uh, around 1999-2000 in the Sound of Grace list, and uh, at that time was quite skeptical. At the same time, I was uh, reading Abraham's Four Seeds, and my first response to Abraham's Four Seeds is that guy's an idiot. Um, <laughs> I really did. <laughs> In fact, I still have that copy, and that copy of the book is, is just inked in red. Since then, I've come to believe that Abraham's four seeds, the seed thought in that book, uh, the key truth there is one of the most profound things, and I've come to endorse and embrace it uh, wholeheartedly as I have New Covenant theology, uh, kicking and screaming as I came. Our subject matter this afternoon is Stephen and New Covenant Theology, and so we're going to be looking at that over uh, the next uh, couple of hours. Stephen was killed for preaching New Covenant Theology. Stephen was killed for preaching New Covenant Theology. St. Stephen the proto-martyr of the Christian church and venerated by the East and the West, died as a New Covenant theologian. Stephanos, aptly named Crown, bestowed the crown of martyrdom and commemorated in feast and observance by the East and the West, was murdered by a mob enraged by the proclamation of a New Covenant turning their world upside down and shattering their reality. This sermon that we find in Acts 7 in front of the Sanhedrin is delivered by a faithful witness to Jesus Christ, the new covenant incarnate who vindicates both message and messenger in this passage. The death of the messenger spawns a gospel proclamation explosion from Jerusalem to Samaria to the ends of the earth and the tremors reverberate to this day. Stephen's message, born on the wings of martyrdom, is inherently New Covenant theology in its seed and inspired form. Few sermons recorded in the pages of Scripture follow the trajectory of redemptive history in such a detailed, concise, and yet comprehensive way as this sermon from Stephen does. In fact, I think only Hebrews 11 is another place in the Scriptures we're going to find this kind of trajectory in redemptive history. As J. Julius Scott has observed, most of Stephen's speech comprises a survey of almost a millennium of Old Testament history and used both quotations and descriptions of Old Testament events, not merely to support his argument, but his primary method of presenting that argument. However, contra Julius Scott, Stephen is presenting the Old Testament history to the Sanhedrin as his defense in a courtroom precisely because he believes that history has been fulfilled in Jesus. Now, because New Covenant theology, as a discipline and as a movement and in our writings, follows the same contours of redemptive history and revelation as Stephen's sermon, most, if not all, of the familiar presuppositions, propositions, and themes of New Covenant theology are articulated here in the sermon in an infallible and errant and inspired form. So if we're looking for the fundamental principles of New Covenant theology in a text, Stephen's sermon is resident to many of them. The inferiority of the patriarchs, the inferiority of Moses, the inferiority of the law, the inferiority of David and Solomon, the inferiority of the tabernacle, the inferiority of the temple, all of this is here. These are held in vivid contrast over against Jesus, who is presented as better than the patriarchs, better than Moses, better than David and Solomon, the one who is the law, the one who is the tabernacle, the one who is the temple incarnate. 
Now, New Covenant theology ideas, such as the fulfillment of the law in Christ and its abrogation, the priority of Jesus, the advancement of the New Covenant over the Old, the new constitution of a New Covenant, people of God, and the newness of the New Covenant, have embedded themselves in Stephen's subconsciousness, and they underpin the fervency with which he preached that sermon. For Stephen and the early church, all of the Old Covenant institutions and heroes have found their intended purposes realized in the person of Jesus. This meant that the continued primacy of those Old Covenant institutions and figures in the national consciousness of Israel constituted idolatry and was deserving of the covenantal curses. Stephen is not simply anti-Moses or anti-Temple. And that's that's the way he's treated by much of historical criticism in that crowd. And that crowd fails to note that Christ himself, it's not just simply Stephen, Christ himself taught that the Old Covenant institutions were fulfilled in himself and therefore would come to their destined finality. Stephen's proclamation flows from a belief that the new covenant has come and the old covenant, indeed the entire pre-Christ reality revealed in the Old Testament, is fading into obsolescence. Christ came, Christ lived, Christ died, Christ rose, Christ reigns. The veil has been torn in two. For Stephen, the old is fading away, and the glory and the permanence of the new covenant in Christ has already surpassed the old. He's willing to die for that thought. This is Stephen's conviction, a conviction for which he's willing to die. Stephen is here in his sermon bearing witness to, with his life to a greater covenant. He will not live to read the words written by an interested observer of his sermon in that courtroom. What once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it, 2 Corinthians 3. We need look no further than Stephen's face, which radiates with the permanent glory of Jesus, that Stephen is convinced that the new covenant has rendered an entire belief system impotent and lifeless. For Stephen, this new covenant, which has come in the person of Jesus and has been ratified with his blood, is quite literally a hill to die on. So as, as we read Stephen's sermon, and we're going to get to that, it becomes quite evident that he does, believe, he does indeed believe that Moses, the law, and the temple are fading into oblivion. It's quite evident that all the Old Covenant and its adherence and what what its adherence held in high esteem are passing off the scene because they've been surpassed by something or someone far greater. The question then arises, how did Stephen know? How does Stephen become convinced that the old is gone and the new has come? One way some conservative evangelicals have answered this question is simply to say, well, Stephen was inspired Or Jesus told him so through the Spirit. Another way some conservatives have suggested is Stephen heard Jesus himself say that the old has gone and the new has come. Like Peter, who seemingly came to an immediate grasp of redemptive history all of a sudden and preached Acts 2. Now there is some truth to all of these things. Don't hear me uh, denigrating the idea that Stephen was inspired I think, though, if we look a little closer at this sermon, Stephen's convictions that were so strongly held were informed and energized by his understanding of who Jesus Christ was and what Jesus had accomplished in light of the Old Testament. Stephen has been, with the other disciples and apostles, down the road to Emmaus. He has seen Christ, his life, his work, his death, his resurrection, and his exaltation as fulfillment of and the culmination of all the Old Testament. So as we move through Stephen's sermon, there are some exegetical considerations, and these exegetical considerations are where we're going to spend the first part of our time here this afternoon. 
These exegetical considerations underlie Stephen's exposition of the Old Testament, and they help providing a framework for understanding Stephen's viewpoint. Marion Swords writes, The speech by Stephen is the most prominent example of the use of the past in an address in the form of explicit citations of Scripture. In addition to explicit quotations of Scripture, there are many allusions to the stories told in Scripture, and although in these allusions there's no over-citation or obvious citation of the text, one often finds words and phrases that are similar to those of particular biblical passages. So with this kind of thorough use of the Old Testament in his speech to the Sanhedrin, it is possible to study this speech in order to get a pretty good grasp of Stephen's and Luke's use of the Old Testament in the New Covenant. So it's my desire in this first part to highlight and note Stephen's presuppositions in interpretation because I think they are helpful for us to understand the correlation between his viewpoint of redemptive history and New Covenant theology. So just as Christ was correcting the hermeneutic of the Jewish leaders in light of his incarnation, so too Stephen is correcting all too well the hermeneutic of the Sanhedrin before whom he stands. These exegetical considerations are Stephen's own hermeneutical presuppositions. And as we understand his sermon better, these must become our own hermeneutical presuppositions as we read and as we interpret the Old Testament. And it's my argument that Steve's hermeneutical presuppositions are similar, if not identical to, the hermeneutical presuppositions foundational to New Covenant theology. In fact, Stephen and his sermon, I believe, is a study in New Covenant theology hermeneutics. The first thing that we can say then about Stephen and about how he's reading his Old Testament and interpreting Israel's history, the first thing we can say is that the entire Old Testament is inherently prophetic. It's not simply the prophets pointing forward to Jesus Christ, but it's also the Pentateuch, the Psalms, the writings, the entire tonic points forward to Christ. The Joseph narrative, for example, for Stephen, does not tell the story of Joseph's humiliation and exaltation accidental or coincidental to the Christ event. Stephen does not co-opt the story of Joseph simply to make a point. Stephen understands the Joseph narrative and the other events that he details as prophetically anticipating, given hint to, and foreshadowing the coming of one greater than Joseph. The second thing we need to see here because Stephen sees Jesus prophetically anticipated in the narratives of the Old Testament. Stephen believes the Old Testament scriptures are God's revelation of himself as the eventual Messiah in word and in deed or in speech and act. Even God's activity in Israel's history is anticipating the coming of one greater than Moses. In the Old Testament, divine activity accompanies divine speech, and vice versa. As we read this sermon, it becomes quite apparent that Stephen understands the divine activity of the Old Testament itself prophetically foreshadows the activity and work of the coming Messiah. Our third point, because the word and its accompanying events are anticipating the the, uh, coming of the Seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15. Stephen's understanding of the Old Testament portrayed in his preaching is that the Old Testament is thoroughly typological. No less than half a dozen Old Testament types spanning the breadth of Israel's history are alluded to in Stephen's sermon. These types become fundamental to Stephen's case that the Sanhedrin not only has missed and crucified Israel's promised Messiah, they should have seen it coming. And in fact, a negative type is in play here as well. Those disobedient Israelites in the Old Testament are playing a type, and they foreshadow the Sanhedrin in, front of, in, in whom um, 
the Sanhedrin in which he's in front of. The disobedient Israelites are prophetically foreshadowing these religious leaders who killed the greatest prophet of them all, the one greater than Moses. Number four, Stephen presents the types, Israel's history, and the revelation of that history as progressive. The Old Testament betrays an organic progress of history moving toward its end in Christ. And underlying Stephen's speech is the belief that the history recorded in the Old, Old Testament is the history of salvation as it proceeds towards its full realization. Beginning with Abraham, Stephen portrays the storyline of the patriarchs, Israel, and her cult of worship progressing toward its intended goal in Jesus. Each era presented by Stephen in Acts 7 is both interconnected with and builds on the era preceding it, with all of the eras and their meta narrative finding their culmination in the Christ era, the end of days, the age to come. Stephen's message to the Sanhedrin reflects James Hamilton's understanding of typology and hermeneutics. Typological interpretation, quoting Hamilton now, is canonical exegesis that observes divinely intended patterns of historical correspondence and escalation and significance in the events, people, or institutions of Israel, and these types are in the redemptive historical stream that flows through the Bible, end of quote. And that's important for us to understand because more often than not, types are typically presented to us and our conservative evangelicalism is simply people. But events, people, and institutions all included in typology. And they are interconnected and they are progressing toward a final goal in Jesus. As history and revelation progress through the Old Testament toward their goal in Christ, there is increasing intensity in the types and increasing illumination of the nature and work of the Messiah. Number five, one of the types underpinning Stephen's sermon, or sermon is covenant. In answering the false charges leveled against him, Stephen notes the progression of Israel's history along covenantal lines. It's not an accident that Abraham, Moses, and David are prominent in his sermon. What are the major Old Testament covenants? Abraham, Moses, and David are three of the four main characters in the progressive covenantal development through Israel's history. The false charges are grounded in the Old Covenants of the Old Testament, covenants that have given way now to a new and better covenant who fulfills or fills up their meaning to its fullest. Stephen believes that covenant and revelation are inseparable and that he himself is the recipient of that new and better covenant whose glory surpasses all the shadowy, incomplete, and inferior covenants of the Old Testament. Stephen delivers his sermon in full confidence that he is living in the new covenant age. Further, that confidence that the new covenant has been inaugurated and that the old covenant is passing away underpins Stephen's passionate conviction in the obsolescence of both temple and law. It's an interesting observation as you study Acts 7 and all of the issues surrounding it that many, if not most, commentators on the book of Acts and the Stephen speech readily note and comment on Stephen's commitment to the obsolescence of the temple. But very few, if any, are willing to acknowledge that the very same kind of obsolescence applies in Stephen's mind to the law. This obsolescence, grounded in the emergence and inauguration of the new covenant, is fundamental to the typological and eschatological way that Stephen is interpreting the Old Testament. It is this typology and this kind of eschatology giving rise to the inbreaking of the new covenant that eventually gets Stephen killed. Number six, Stephen also believes that the rhythm of the redemptive history and revelation of the Old Testament of scriptures occurs in the form of promise and fulfillment. 
The rhythm of promise and fulfillment is readily apparent in Stephen's sermon. Just as the word accompanies and interprets God's salvific events in the Old Testament, so too promise is consistently and faithfully followed by fulfillment. This revelation of the Old Testament becomes for Stephen the pattern by which he has interpreted the person and work and word of Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, the yes and amen who fulfills or fills up the meaning of all of the Old Testament promises. Number seven, as Stephen preaches his case against the Sanhedrin, it becomes readily apparent that he believes he is providing a definitive interpretation of the Old Testament. A running theme in Stephen's use of the Old Testament is the hermeneutical and eschatological priority of the Christ event in interpreting the Old Testament. Stephen does not yet have the New Testament addition to the canon, but already he is providing a glimpse of how the New Testament interprets the Old, and in his sermon he models the New Testament and the Christ event as the definitive interpretation of the Old Testament era. Stephen has a new framework now because of the Christ event for interpreting Abraham, Joseph, Moses, the law, the temple, and Old Testament history. In contrast, some of the commentators out there, he's not so much reinterpreting the Old Testament as he is interpreting the Old Testament events, persons, and scriptures as having found their fulfillment and final goal in the person of Jesus. Stephen is interpreting the Old Testament through the, through the lens of the life, cross, resurrection, and exaltation of Jesus. Number eight, closely related to this issue, as we study the way Stephen is interpreting the Old Testament and his understanding of the prophetic nature of the Old Testament scriptures, we find that Stephen is interpreting the Old Testament texts in their context, in their original context. It's not so much that Stephen has found new meaning in the passages pertaining to Joseph or even in Joseph himself, himself. it's that Stephen understands this interpretation to have been resident in Joseph and his story all along. Stephen has not found new use for the Joseph story, but believes that in Jesus, in Jesus, we find the Joseph story given its fullest and final meaning. The same can be said of the way Stephen understands the law, understands the temple, understands David and Solomon. All along, the types and the shadows of the Old Testament were never ends to themselves. They are shadows. They are inherently prophetic. So that Jesus and the New Covenant age are always, always, always part of the original context. Number nine, we also observe in Stephen's sermon that Stephen's unpacking of Israel's history in the Old Testament, especially as it relates to the law and the temple, is saturated with biblical theological exegesis. Biblical theology considers and this is quoting Voss, considers both the form and contents of revelation from the point of view of the revealing activity of God himself. Biblical theological exegesis tries to understand and trace and describe revelation as an act of God. That's what Stephen's doing here. Like Jesus, Stephen is schooling the religious leaders in the craft of biblical interpretation, (laughs) something they're missing. Beginning with Abraham, Stephen exposits the Bible in its own terms, in its own chronology, as reflected in its canonical form, tracing the connections between Old Testament themes and showing relationships between them. That's quoting Hamilton. That presupposition leads to number 10. Stephen understands the Old Testament scriptures, then, to be thoroughly messianic. And therefore, his understanding and interpretation of the Old Testament is comprehensively Christocentric and Christological. If the Old Testament is shadows, the Old Testament is messianic, 
Stephen can't help himself but see Christ in those shadows. Jesus provides the fullest and final meaning to the Old Testament scriptures because all of the Old Testament scriptures are about Jesus. Christ is the end point for the types and the shadows because those types and shadows in their original form were ultimately about him. Stephen believes in the priority of Jesus over the temple, the priority of Jesus over the law, the priority of Jesus over Moses, because he believes that all of the revelation and acts of God surrounding these things intentionally points to Jesus in their original forms. All of the Old Testament writers were writing from a messianic consciousness. All of God's activities and works recorded in the Old Testament revelation were ultimately saying something about the person and work of Jesus. It's not only obvious that Stephen has been reading his Old Testament through a Christological lens, it's evident that he shares with New Covenant theology a firm belief that because Jesus has filled up the meaning of the Old Testament, the types and those shadows are passing away. It is this thought that Jesus is the full and final revelation of God and therefore gives the Old Testament its intended meaning that cost Stephen his life. It wasn't simply that Stephen was teaching against the law, against Moses, and against the temple. If it were simply this, he would have suffered little more than a severe chastisement. After all, the other apostles were teaching and preaching this way. But Stephen said more than this. He said the law is invalid because Christ has filled up the meaning and intent of the law. Moses is inferior because Christ has filled up the meaning and intent of everything that Moses was supposed to be for Israel. The temple is eventually coming down sooner rather than later because Christ has filled up the meaning and intent of the temple as God's dwelling place on earth with men to its fullest and final extent. If Christ has filled up the fullest meaning of the temple and the fullest meaning of law, those things are invalid. You don't need them anymore. That temple is coming down. That kind of a thought will get you killed if you say it in front of the Sanhedrin. Number 11, finally, an idea that underlies everything that we've said to this point. Stephen is reading his Old Testament as if the Old Testament scriptures, its words, and its deeds are thoroughly and intentionally eschatological. The end is always imposing itself into the present, and this is true of the Old Testament age and its revelation. Nowhere is this more apparent than Stephen's quote of Solomon's dedication of the temple. The temple was never an end in and of itself. That temple was always intended to be a copy of that final state of affairs at the end of time when God will dwell with men in a temple made without hands, a temple that is incarnate in the Messiah. Stephen is fully convinced of the priority of Jesus because he sees in the Old Testament types and shadows the end goal of all things in Jesus, a goal which shaped the event and revelation of Abraham, of Joseph, of the law, of the temple, everything we find here in Acts 7. Those types and shadows were pushing Israel, or should have been pushing Israel to see, that Jesus is the end goal of all of history. This should have push them to see that Jesus is the end goal of their own history. As he reads and studies his Old Testament, and as he has become witness to the person and work of Jesus, Stephen knows that what God has spoken and acted through the patriarchs, through Moses, what he said about the temple, has been in anticipation of, in preparation for, the definitive word and act of God in Christ quoting Goldsworthy. And as those types and those shadows find their full realization in Jesus, so too does the history to which they belong. Stephen understands that all of history, all of history, not just Israel's, is moving toward its final destination and final destiny in Jesus. Like Paul, who ironically followed Stephen's hermeneutic later, 
Stephen's proclamation of the gospel portrays a belief that the eschatological principle is so deeply embedded in the structure of the biblical religion so as to proceed and underlie everything else. Everything we preach, everything we teach is thoroughly eschatological because the end is always present among us. As if to emphasize Stephen's eschatological view of the Old Testament scriptures in the pre-Christ age, Stephen delivers his sermon in the present, in the already, reflecting the glory from the age to come all over his face. In that courtroom, the not yet intrudes into the already, vindicating Stephen's interpretation of the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus Christ. Before we finally begin with unpacking Stephen's sermon, one last consideration we have to briefly note, and that's to be fair with the text. Stephen's sermon, as is recorded in Acts 7, isn't simply recorded for history's sake. Even Stephen's martyrdom, as important as it is in the history of the church, is not chronicled by Luke simply because the murder of Stephen needed recorded for posterity or to teach us a lesson or even to set before Christianity an example for martyrdom. And again, all of those things are important. As important as all of those things are, the narrative of Stephen's sermon and his martyrdom is part of a larger argument being made by Luke in the book of Acts and has to be included because of Luke's purposes in writing to Theophilus. The context of Stephen's sermon is the rest of the book of Acts. And his sermon and its narrative must be understood in light of the storyline of the book of Acts. If we were to study the rest of Luke and Acts, we would find that these same 11 presuppositions, hermeneutical presuppositions that Stephen unpacks in his sermon are shared by Luke, who incorporates the sermon and the storyline of Acts, which itself is informed with the same presuppositions. The book of Acts is the second volume in a two-volume set written to Theophilus. The purpose statement for Stephen's sermon can be found in Luke 1, 1 1-4, where we find Luke telling Theophilus that he has written an orderly account for Theophilus so that Theophilus would have certainty concerning the things that he's been taught. This orderly account takes the form of a legal argument in a court of law with Luke presenting his case to Theophilus. This argument in a court of law is an unpacking of redemptive history containing all of the presuppositions we've just now outlined. And as, we, as the book of Luke begins to unfold, and, and certainly as Acts begins to unfold, but as the book of Luke begins to unfold, we ascertain quite quickly that the things that Theophilus has been taught primarily orbited around the question of Jesus as the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. And you don't get too far into Luke, after Luke 1, that you find these same hermeneutical presuppositions kicking in. In unpacking Jesus as the promised Messiah of the Old Testament, Luke doesn't resort to propositional dogmas. And I think in our Greek society, that's the way we'd like it to be. Instead, he's using narrative or story form to make his case. So, as you trace Luke toward the end of the book, You go from Satan's temptation. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down. To Christ's question, who do you say that I am? To the mocking thief's temptation, if you be the Christ, if you be the promised one. To those puzzled disciples who are traveling on the road to Emmaus, they're all asking the same questions. It's all orbiting around this particular idea. Are you the Christ? The puzzled disciples on the road to Emmaus are saying, We thought he was the promised one. The question of Christ's identity as the promised Messiah looms large in the book of Luke. So before Luke is finished with the first volume, he's made his case that Christ as a promised Messiah is not only in keeping with Israel's history as it's recorded in the Old Testament, but it is foreshadowed and anticipated in the Old Testament. Christ's story is the development of Israel's story. 
If Theophilus and the early church are to be certain of the things that they've been taught, they are going to join the disciples on the road to Emmaus, where Christ gives understanding eyes of faith to those who are his disciples, and he does that using the whole of Scripture. As we come now to Acts, the question for Theophilus then becomes, if Jesus is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament, where is his kingdom? The answer Luke gives to Theophilus is that Christ's kingdom has begun in Jerusalem, as is the ever-expanding and wider, in wider circumference, moving from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. Christ accomplishes his kingdom expansion through his spirit, who is growing Christ's church and growing the proclamation of the word. For Theophilus and an early church gathering that may be bewildered by an upside-down Messiah who suffers humiliation in life and death, Luke explains to Theophilus and the early church that Christ's death was necessary because of the plan of God revealed in the Old Testament, anticipated in the shadows. Not only was Christ's death and resurrection promised and anticipated in the Old Testament, all that was anticipated had been accomplished in Christ's life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his exaltation. Since that death and resurrection, Christ had opened the minds of those with whom he had intimate fellowship, showing them from the Old Testament scriptures that Christ should, sh should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Christ crucified, now in the book of Acts, has been exalted to his throne, and now those very same disciples, energized by the Spirit, descended from heaven in Shekinah glory at Pentecost, now carrying the proclamation of repentance and forgiveness of sins to the ends of the earth. And by the time we get to Acts chapter 7 and Stephen, Christ is on his throne. The Spirit has given birth to the church visible. And now Christ, through his Spirit, is expanding his church from Jerusalem to, to, you get to, you get to Acts 7 and you're thinking, okay, where's the uh, ends of the earth? Kingdom expansion up to Acts 7 primarily was numeric rather than geographic or even what I call geospatial. But we must see that Stephen's sermon and martyrdom serve the larger purposes of Luke in writing Theophilus so that Theophilus can be certain that Christ is indeed the promised Messiah of the Old Testament and he is now in the heavens ruling and reigning and he is expanding and increasing the church and the word through the Spirit. Stephen serves to underscore the emphatic point of the road to Emmaus. All of the Old Testament points to Jesus and his cross kind of life and death. And the persecution that the church is now facing shouldn't surprise us because what they've done to Jesus, they've now done to Stephen. And they might quite, quite possibly do it to you, Theophilus, and your church. The church, just like her Savior, faces a cross kind of death in the book of Luke and Acts. Stephen was so convinced. I mean, and this is what gripped Stephen. Stephen understood this. Stephen was so convinced of the new and greater covenant that had come in Jesus, he was willing to spill blood for the kingdom, his own blood. Stephen's martyrdom unleashed a gospel tsunami from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, and the world has never been the same since Acts 8. Christ obtained the glory that was rightfully his in his death and resurrection for his people, those people, in turn, will die to themselves in order for that glory and fame to be spread to the ends of the earth. Those who embrace Jesus Christ, his new covenant, and all of the implications of the new realities of the new covenant can expect to end up before their own Sanhedrins. People of the new covenant can expect to end up before the Sanhedrins of the world and at the painful and fatal end of rocks thrown by those 
who refused to bow the knee to the new king, the new king who reigns and expands his word from the heavens. Having made these observations, it's now time to take up the sermon itself. For these few brief moments, we'll look at the precursor of Acts, about that time we'll take a break, and then we will continue unpacking Acts 7. Now, having made these observations that Stephen understands that Jesus Christ's coming has fulfilled the Old Testament scriptures, our study does not begin in Acts 7 or even Acts 6, but Deuteronomy 33. So beginning in Deuteronomy 33, verse 1 through 5, this is what God's word proclaims to us. This is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the people of Israel before his death. He said, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. Yes, he loved his people. All his holy ones were in his hand. So they followed in your steps, receiving direction from you. When Moses commanded us a law as a possession for the assembly of Jacob... Thus the Lord became king in Jeshurun, when the heads of the people were gathered, all the tribes of Israel, together. Our second passage for us to briefly consider before moving into Acts 6 and 7 is found in Luke 2. So keep, your, keep in mind, just keep in your head, because I think this is in Stephen's, Deuteronomy 33. And now as Luke is unpacking Stephen's sermon... We need to consider Luke 2, a very familiar passage to all of us. Luke 2, 8 through 14. Same passage quoted by Linus. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold... I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. These passages mark two glorious events in redemptive history. The first that we read in Deuteronomy 33 is the giving of the law to Moses at Sinai. Now, not only are we told elsewhere in the book of Exodus that Moses' face radiated with the Shekinah glory of God, here in Deuteronomy 33, we're told that when Moses came down, with the, down the mountain with the law for God's people, he was accompanied by angels. Now, this is a story that isn't all that familiar to us, uh, to those of us who are Gentiles. We don't, when we're thinking about the giving of the law, we turn to Exodus. We don't turn to Deuteronomy. The second passage we know by heart. What a glorious occasion indeed was that night in Bethlehem. What an entrance into history. <laughs> what other child has been accompanied by thousands of holy ones into this world? In this angelic moment on a Bethlehem hillside with shepherds, there's a brief glimpse into the intrusion of heaven into time and space. Reminiscent of what we've learned in the book of Genesis, here is the Lord of the ladder that first appeared to Jacob who descends with angels to earth to take his place among men as he promised he would do. The angels are no longer ascending and descending on Jacob's ladder. They have stopped in the heavens to give praise and to announce the good news that that Bethel is obsolete. God has a new house. The Messiah has been delivered by angels to dwell among those on whom he has favor. And yet, we understand, as we read the rest of the text, not all is glorious in the Savior's arrival on earth. 
It's not all glory. In fact, that's about all the glory there is. <laughs> Messiah is born in a manger. It's not going to be long before mom and dad are fleeing for their lives to Egypt. All male children his age in Bethlehem are brutally massacred as a result of this glorious hillside the uh, scene. Life is disrupted. And so it will be disrupted the rest of Jesus' life on earth. He's the son of man who has no place to lay his head. He's the one who has come, ironically, not to bring peace, but a sword. He has come to set a man against his father and a mother, uh, daughter against her mother. The peace spoken of by that angel on the Bethlehem hillside, that first Christmas morn, comes with a price. And ultimately, it's the price of his life. This intrusion of heaven into time and space has its climax not in the shepherds worshiping the baby, but in another glorious event years later. Just as the angels announced Christ's birth at night, there are two men in dazzling apparel at the dawn of the first day of the week announcing to frightened women, He is not here, but He is risen. And when Christ ascends to his throne in the heavenlies as the exalted and resurrected Savior, guess who's standing there? Two angels on the ground announcing to his followers that the good tidings of great joy is not only for all people but will be spread to all people beginning in Jerusalem. As Christ ascends into glory, the Holy Spirit descends in glory on the new creation in an upper room. Just as the Spirit has been poured out on Christ, now the Spirit is poured out by Christ on his people. Even as it's been promised in the law and the prophets, which those disciples on the road to Emmaus now knew oh so well, thanks to Jesus. In the wake of the Spirit breathing life into the church, 3,000 are added to the number of the small band of followers that have been meeting in that upper room. And yet, like we've got in Luke, not as all glorious in the beginning. It's not long before the church is in a flight for her life, or fight for her life. Christ reigns from his throne in the heavenlies, but as he's promised, the sword continues on earth below. Those who hated Jesus now hate those who bear his name. There's rising opposition to those who believe that Jesus has risen from the dead and has ascended to his throne. And as we get into Acts 6, some who are those witnesses, some who believe that Jesus has risen, have already spent time in jail. Angry words have been exchanged between the apostles and the same Sanhedrin that had crucified Jesus. These apostles have been beaten. You get the sense as this intensity escalates that it's only a matter of time before that tension boils over and somebody gets killed. By the end of Acts 5, we're told the apostles are rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple, from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the promised one of the Old Testament. The Christ. Not only is there opposition without, there's opposition within. Not only are they getting heat outside, there's heat coming from within the church. Acts 6 begins with the first serious discord in the infant church. That brings us to our primary text, Acts 6, beginning with verse 7. Acts 6, verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of Alexandrians and of those from Sicilia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So in spite of all the opposition that's being leveled at the young church, the church was flourishing. As the word of God and the gospel increased, the number of Christ's followers increased. 
God's activity in time and space did not end with Christ's ascent to the throne. In fact, it's just beginning. As Luke records it, the activity of God's salvation of his people is actually picking up speed. And where God is active, there are his instruments or who are his means for accomplishing his activity. The growth of the church in the midst of increasing opposition is now in Acts 6, creating some problems for the new church. Seven men have been chosen to address those problems. The one name that rose to the top of the new group was Stephen, a man that Luke tells us is full of faith in the Holy Spirit. You know, some believe that Stephen was among the original 70 followers of Jesus, and that would have made him an eyewitness to Christ's ministry, as well as his death, resurrection, and ascension. Here in Acts 6, Stephen not only serves the church with his hands and feet, as he was appointed to do, but obvious, or obviously he is preaching and teaching and doing so at a very high level. More than once in this passage, Luke draws our attention to the exceptional Stephen. He is full of grace and power, doing signs and wonders among the people. These are Stephen's credentials. It's these credentials that validate his witness to Christ and his gospel. It's interesting that the language that Luke is using here to describe Stephen, same type of language that he uses to describe Jesus in Luke 2, 22. He's full of grace and power. As Stephen engages what's probably his own synagogue with the claims of Christ, his spirit-given ability to proclaim and defend the gospel as such, his detractors are left embarrassed and speechless. They could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So you take all of this together, this brief bio from Luke to Theophilus about Stephen Stephen, then, you get the sense, is now a rising star in the infant church. If there's anybody that's going to lead this church into the new covenant age, it's got to be Stephen. There's no one like him. And so, subsequent history, three-quarters of the New Testament are written by Stephen. Right? (laughs) There's a huge, huge hiccup in the early church. As Theophilus, the man to whom Luke and Acts were written, reads Luke's account, he probably begins to think that Stephen must be God's choice for spreading the good news around the planet. But all is not well. Just as Christ's proclamation of the word in the synagogues invited enemies, it's it's just a matter of time, and Stephen's own proclamations are now attracting enemies. This pattern unfolds throughout the book of Acts. This pattern unfolds in the book of Acts, is, the, is happening in parallel with the word of God increasing as the church is increasing. And as the word of God increases, the church increases. The numbers increase, but so too does the persecution. And as the opposition increases, Christ is further expanding his kingdom. And this is precisely what's about to happen as a result of Stephen's sermon. Verse 11 of chapter 6. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And what does that sound like, by the way? Where have we seen that before? And where have we seen the next verse before? And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place in the law, for we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, Are these things so? The opposition to the infant church and her Christ has been exalted message is escalating. In chapter 2 of Acts, the apostles within the descent of the spirit of Pentecost with his life-giving breath are mocked as being drunken men. 
In chapter 4, the religious leaders were greatly annoyed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. The apostles were arrested and jailed and threatened with punishment. In chapter 5, they were arrested. The leaders wanted to kill them, but they did not do so. They were physically beaten in chapter 5 and threatened again. And now we find them not only arresting Stephen, but now setting up a trial with false witnesses on dubious charges. Where have we heard that before? An invalid trial, false witnesses, dubious charges. It hasn't taken long, probably no more than a year or so. And the religious leaders who thought they could rid themselves of Christ now find themselves again at a boiling point with Christ's followers who are preaching the very same message that Christ preached. And what we see in these verses and what follows in the following chapters is a church that is very much aware that it is tracing Christ's footsteps, even his steps to the cross, even to the point of mimicking his story. You know, Luke is painting a picture here of redemptive history, deja vu. And as we'll see, Stephen himself is now soon going to be doing the same thing. Unable to trap Christ with his own words in the courts of public opinion, the Sanhedrin found false witnesses and held an illegal trial. Unable to counter Stephen's preaching and teaching, they could not stand against the word and the spirit. The Sanhedrin, that very same Sanhedrin, the very same Caiaphas, who set up false witnesses, have now set up false witnesses against Stephen in what came to be its second invalid trial involving Christ and his followers, and again, probably all within the same year. They are bent on ridding themselves of this Christ. Notice the charges. Stephen is charged on two counts, attacking God and his temple and attacking Moses and the law. Both charges in the Jewish context amounted to blasphemy. At least one of the charges is virtually identical to Christ in his own trial. Matthew and Mark uh, account for us. The two false witnesses came forward and said about Christ, This man said, I will destroy this temple of God made with hands and build one not made with hands three days later. Which is precisely what John, Jesus said in John chapter 2. Christ, though, was not obviously, as we know, not speaking about the physical temple, but of himself, God's new temple that would replace the old. It was Christ who dared to say, one greater than the temple is here. Howard Key also points out in, his first, in this first volume to Theophilus and Luke, Jesus had prophesied the destruction of the temple. And in that instance, made no mention of his own personal involvement. Such talk of the destruction of Israel's home to worship was heresy in the ears of those who stood to lose the most in the transition from shadow to reality. The other charge involved Christ's relationship to and teaching of the law. Christ said he came to fulfill the law. Further, in his correction of Mosaic interpretation, he single-handedly had wiped away hundreds of years of scribal tradition and legalism. Again, such teaching was heresy in the ears of those who stood to lose the most in the reality that one greater than Moses had come. Christ not only taught that he himself was all that the temple and law anticipated, his life, death, and resurrection and ascension had accomplished all that the temple and law had foreshadowed. Moses and the temple found in the Messiah their ultimate God intention. Christ rose and ascended as the new temple and the new Torah. Stephen and the apostles had the benefit of witnessing Christ's fulfillment of his own teaching in the resurrection and ascension, as well as the descent of the Holy Spirit. This became their proclamation. Christ, the new and better Moses, the new temple, the new Torah, has risen and ascended. The upshot is that while the witnesses were false in their motive and in their implication that Christ and Stephen meant to denigrate God and Moses, that witness was not all fabrication. They were at least proving that they had heard Jesus and Stephen correctly. <laughs> is it any wonder, then, that the one who now stands accused of denigrating Moses and the law now has a face that looks like it has just descended from Sinai 
with a set of tablets in his hand. <laughs> We're told in Exodus 34 that when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of testimony in his hand, the skin of his face shone because he'd been talking with God. Moses, with unveiled, shining face, proclaimed God's law to his people. Now, here in the aftermath of Pentecost, we have God's servant, Stephen, proclaiming the one who's better than Moses, who's the fulfillment of the law and the establishment of the new temple made without hands. And in a miraculous display of vindication and affirmation in an adverse courtroom, Stephen is now reflecting the Shekinah glory brazen and unfazed by the obvious Moses figure in the room. There's no elephant in the room now. Moses is in the room. <laughs> Caiaphas says, what do you have to say for yourself? And this question, again, is reminiscent to the question that Caiaphas himself would put to Christ after hearing from the two false witnesses. This time, though, there's a marked contrast to Christ's trial. Stephen, full of grace and power, full of the Spirit and with wisdom, will not stand silent in this courtroom. So the Sanhedrin, in the glow of the shining face, has no choice but to listen to what Stephen is about to say. And that's where we'll pick up after our break. <laughs> 